Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. On Wednesday night, an attack on two shisha bars in the German city of Hanau left at least 10 people dead. Days earlier, the suspect had posted a video online promoting far-right conspiracy theories. It's the latest incident in the rise of right-wing terrorism, linking mass shootings at a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand last March, in El Paso, Texas in August, and at a synagogue in Halle, Germany in October. And earlier this month, the continued threat of Islamist extremism was made clear when a man convicted of terror offences stabbed two people in South London. What drives ordinary people to commit mass violence? How has technology transformed the way extremist groups operate? And what can these events reveal about how radicalisation works across ideologies? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, what makes an extremist? My guest spent two years going deep undercover to find out. Julia Ebner, a counter-extremism analyst, juggled multiple identities to infiltrate a dozen radical groups across the spectrum. Her work took her from sites designed to brainwash brides for ISIS to a neo-Nazi rock festival and a group for women who want to fight for traditional gender roles called Trad Wives. She recounts her experiences in a new book, Going Dark, The Secret Social Lives of Extremists. Julia Ebner, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello. So what first drew you to investigate the roots of extremism, something a lot of us want to turn away from? I mean, I've been in this field um, ever since finishing my studies. It was at the height uh, of ISIS operations in Syria and Iraq. And when more and more people from Europe and and North America started joining uh, jihadist groups. And then I could also see the problem of the far right and far right extremism and terrorism rising. So that led me to um, to join a think tank in that field. But then um, I I. It felt a bit like I was hitting walls in my daily job. We were using great data analysis tools that allow us, for example, to trace back radicalization campaigns to look at how um, some of these movements spread across online platforms and and attract uh, new audiences. But it was very hard to get um, really to the heart of the problem and to really see what it is that drives individuals into those networks. So I wanted to see more of the human dimension, I guess. You write in the book that in your working hours, I was the cat, you say, but in my spare time, I joined the mice. And tell us about the the first time that you did that and how did you go about it? I set up five different identities to infiltrate movements across the ideological spectrum. So I had to build a credible online presence, first of all, and interact with people uh, in order for them to then invite me to to offline events um, or to be recruited into the networks. And how hard is it to create a identity for yourself that is consistent enough to be accepted by groups, some of whom are quite sophisticated at spotting infiltration. Absolutely. I definitely had to be present sometimes in my late 
evening hours because that's when most of the people uh, participating in some of these also trolling armies, for example, become active after they come home from their jobs. That's how they spend their spare time, sadly. But um, so it's all about um, maintaining a presence during those hours. And in some of the cases, there were also more and more rigorous vetting procedures. For example, for one American neo-Nazi group, I had to submit uh, a picture of my wrist to prove that I'm white with the, the group logo and the timestamp on it. And I even had to submit the results of a genetic test to prove that I have no non-white heritage. So they had some, um, yeah, some quite crazy recruitment procedures. Um, the same was true for some of the other movements where I had to do live voice chat interviews or even meet people in person, like with the white nationalist movement Generation Identity, where I actually met in person for an interview. And were there moments when you came close to blowing your own cover? There were quite a lot of them. And it's mainly also because I never received any training for these undercover investigations. So, I mean, of course, I'm not a trained um, kind of MI5 professional undercover agent. So this meant that I did make quite a lot of mistakes, sometimes very stupid mistakes, like um, putting my real name, Julia, under an email where I was supposed to reply with Jenny. There were some moments also, for example, when I joined Generation Identity and I went to their first strategy, secret strategy meeting in an Airbnb in London because they were launching the UK and Ireland branch in the Airbnb with uh, the white nationalists. I dropped my credit card with my real name on it. I was surprised that... In some of these moments that were, I actually was quite close to being exposed, um, they didn't find out. Did you feel fear? I was definitely scared in some moments, not really at the Generation Identity movement, because that's a movement that really cares a lot about their image, about their reputation. I didn't think they would use violence, even if they it had exposed me. But um, I did go to a neo-Nazi rock festival and MMA uh, mixed martial arts festival at the border of Germany and Poland. And I knew that people who were there, sometimes had a criminal record. The police was checking everyone. Um, at least the police was present on the grounds, but they weren't really inside the concert hall, for example. So those were moments when I asked myself, did I actually go too far? Maybe I should not have come here. You see, I'm wondering, listening to this, why you don't just get a day job with the intelligence services and sort of go straight, if you know what I mean, and get a proper training. That's actually a question I've never had. I mean, I do value very much and appreciate the work that the intelligence agencies and the security forces do. But I do think that there is also room for investigative journalism, for research that needs to happen aside from that work. Because also the intelligence um, services and the security services have only a limited capacity to really investigate tangible threats and uh, organized terrorist organizations. I think that's the, obviously the main focus. And the focus has long been, unfortunately, on jihadist uh, violence only or almost exclusively in many countries. I felt like as an independent um, undercover researcher, I really also wanted to expose some of the dangers that we have from some of these organized but sometimes loose networks of violent far-right extremists. And something that I hadn't realized was such a threat to, to those who investigate far-right groups is basically having it turned on you in a very personal and aggressive way and using barging into your office. In the case of the English Defence League, which is a very well-known far-right group in Britain, in which Tommy Robinson is, is one of the, the big activists and agitators, they sort of came after you using technology on their side. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, that was after I had published an article in The Guardian um, linking Tommy Robinson, their founder, to white supremacist movements and giving his account of an example of how these movements are becoming increasingly mainstreamed. Uh, and he then came to my office with a cameraman and live streamed the whole confrontation to his 300,000 Twitter followers back then. And this was followed by a huge uh, hate campaign with including death threats and sexual threats. So this is definitely something that ever since then I have been very much aware of the fact that these influences can have a huge influence over entire organizations. I was dismissed as a as a result of this big campaign and it, it did have... It, it, because you were seen as too hot to handle. Because essentially, yeah, because I was I also refused to retract uh, my article or to say that I regret having written that article because I didn't want to give in to that intimidation campaign. But it did show me how much power they can have over organizations, but also over me on a psychological level. Of course, this is intimidating. And this is something this is a tactic that the far right especially has used very skillfully against journalists, against researchers, also against political activists and politicians in order to silence them. And what's your advice or reflection then on what to do in that situation? Do you simply stand your ground and argue back with the facts that you know? Or do you not engage? I think this is something that people find very hard to calculate is when to engage and when to step back. I've increasingly learned that engaging doesn't really help and is in most cases, even making it worse. So I, I've stopped engaging and usually try to ignore it. But that's, of course, difficult. I usually go on a social media detox and just try to not, not look at my Twitter feed for some time. You have an Austrian background yourself. Now you sit within the Institute of Strategic Dialogue. It's a bit of a, a lofty name, but basically it was founded by a rather eminent Austrian-born public figure in, in Britain and became a place with a lot of researchers working on, on different things, but a sort of anti-extremism centre. And I wondered how much your own family background in Austria, in a country with a history of extremism in the 20th century, uh, a new populist challenges of its own at the moment, if that's the kind of driver for you and that's where you feel particularly at home. It has definitely played a role, I think, in general, also Holocaust education in school and now seeing some of the anti-Semitic tropes and seeing some of the conspiracy theories return and some of the language return to public discourse is something that has been particularly bothering me. And maybe that is because of my background of coming from a country uh, that has framed itself actually quite skillfully as a victim of the Second World War, whereas we also played quite a driving role in, in the Holocaust. And did you grow up in Austria? I did grow up in Austria, yeah. And it's been a topic that I've been interested in since being a child. But it's it's also something where I think our schools in Austria are not like the German schools raising a lot of awareness about the topic. There are some schools that are better at this, but there are also some schools that still portray our role in the Second World War is almost being a victim that was exploited by Germany with the Anschluss. It is something that where, where I find it terrifying seeing also my country now with the Freedom Party gaining ground over the last few years, especially seeing my country that played such a, a, a critical role in, in the Holocaust now returning to some of that rhetoric or to some of those anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, now also increasingly anti-Muslim conspiracy theories. I'd love to know a bit more about what your views have become and what drives extremism more broadly. We often talk about being radicalised in the passive as if it's something that, that happens to people. Was that your experience of groups that you dealt with, that it was something that was effectively done to someone or vulnerable people were sucked into it? How much agency do you think individuals have? 
ultimately, it's of course always every individual's responsibility on whether they join a movement, on whether they stay there, on whether they leave. But there is also an element of very skillful manipulation of both online users and then essentially also that can manifest in itself in real world action. And the problem is that especially with the way that the algorithms work, the way that some of these social media bubbles or echo chambers work, it is very easy to exploit whenever an individual has a weak moment or is vulnerable. So I'd say, of course, everyone still has responsibility, but there is uh, there, there are very organized, highly organized, highly skillful recruiters of extremist movements that use, for example, tactics of gamification, manipulation and very slick communication campaigns to lure individuals into their networks who might not even be ideologically or politically interested yet. And is there a sort of lowest common denominator that would give us a guide to the profile of a typical recruit and the similarities across the different ideologies that you encountered? This was something that was very interesting. Of course, there is a kind of a lowest common denominator in that most of the people who join these movements or who become influential within extremist movements of any kind in all the different groups that I joined had some kind of traumatic experience or some kind of humiliation or were looking for some kind of family replacement or some kind of sense of belonging. And these new communities that emerge on social media especially are giving rise to completely new forms of belonging. I thought this was one of the main drivers of many individuals. But at the same time, there was no clear profile. So I could really see people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, some people even have PhDs from different age groups join these movements. And, but what do you think drives people? I can understand perhaps more readily how someone who is in a moment of crisis or whose life is generally a, a bit of a mess and is therefore very suggestible to an extremist ideology, how they might get involved online. What do you think then makes the difference that takes people from being the passive member of an online community, sounding off about groups that they think are to blame in society, to more active members who are prepared to go out and do harm to others? The difference, at least in monitoring some of the language that it was used by the recent terrorist attackers in Christchurch, Powell, Paso and Halle, for example, is that these individuals also believe that there is an imminent existential threat to themselves, to their families and to society as a whole. And that, in their eyes, justifies violent actions against the so-called So you're actually talking about the far right here in, in, in Germany. This case, yeah, but it's very similar for jihadist attackers. And it was the case for, for the latest yeah, far right terrorists in, in New Zealand, in the US and also in Germany. But there is certainly that idea of a of a coming war of of cultures races or religions that is driving individuals to undertake a form of defensive action whether that's in the form of a defensive jihad as isis or al-qaeda would phrase it or in the form of a defensive action against migrants muslims or jews that are considered as the enemy by farad terrorists and there's often a perception of extremist religious or political as, as mainly male did you find that that held true or were there outstanding exceptions? Generally speaking, the majority of users with an identifiable gender were male. However, there's a growing number of female influences within a lot of both the jihadist and the far-right movements and also some of the conspiracy theory movements that I looked into. Interestingly, and what I found most shocking, there's also a growing number of female misogynists 
where I thought this was a complete oxymoron, um, having female anti-feminists campaign for going back to kind of the 1950s or even back to earlier stages where women just have nothing to say and the desired response to verbal or even physical abuse is the shut the fuck up method. They actually call it like this, sorry for the language, but this is their recommendation. There's a group called Trad Wives that you mm. wrote about. Yeah, I hadn't heard of Trad Wives, so you might uh, give me a, a guide to what Trad Wives are standing for. The Trad Wives are a fringe community with um, tens of thousands of members, however, forms part of the bigger manosphere kind of subculture on the internet. It's a misogynist um, mosaic of different subcultures. One of them is also the incels movement, which inspired even terrorist attacks against women. And this Tradwives community stands for traditional wives. It's basically made up of women across the spectrum of ranging from very ultra conservative women who want to go back to traditional gender roles and traditional family systems where women don't have anything to say, all the way to endorsing violence, domestic violence, and also sometimes even endorsing violent action against feminists. So feeding into some of these really quite dangerous misogynist movements as well. I think that must have been personally quite a difficult task to undertake to infiltrate a group like that. What are common factors, do you think, among women who take that path? Is it in the end driven perhaps by an attachment to a dominant male in their lives? Or is this something else that we perhaps taking a lot of progress for granted, mm. don't quite understand about a desire sometimes to say, don't want it anymore? Yeah, a pattern that I could observe among many of these women, the, when they posted about their motivations, it seems like many of them were um, had a lot of insecurities that had something to do with um, with modern society and the way and what's expected of, of them as a woman. So they felt overwhelmed either, for example, with things that even I could identify with, with double burdens, with the so-called hookup culture, online dating apps, and all the challenges that come with that were sometimes it seemed like there was a vacuum where these these newly arising challenges weren't really properly addressed by anyone. And they then went to this online platform of the Treadwives almost in an attempt to find a solution to it or to find answers to that. From the outside, in the beginning, it looked almost like a, a counseling forum or a self-help forum. You talk about gamification of discourse. How does that work? And beyond the fact that I suppose almost everything is now digitally inculcated, it's true of progressive messaging, it's true of conservative politics within the acceptable bounds. How is gamification then driving something that is different and more dangerous if it is in terms of extremism? In recent years, gamification has increasingly been adopted as a tactic to recruit new members, but also to do their propaganda by extremist actors on all sides of the ideological spectrum. ISIS has used a lot of gamification mechanisms in, for example, their propaganda. They even put faces of, of prominent jihadists on top of uh, video game covers and used sometimes even gaming language, but also used incentive systems for joining. And the same is true for some of the neo-Nazi trolling armies that, for example, used point systems to reward members that were particularly successful in launching campaigns against political opponents. Unfortunately, we've now even seen not just the gamification of recruitment and propaganda, but also the gamification of acts of terrorism themselves. So with the New Zealand attacker last year, this was the first instance of what I would call gamified terrorism, where we could really witness 
this terrorist attack was using gaming language. The live stream footage that he posted was even shot from an angle that resembled first-person ego shooter games. And it was also then very quickly turned into versions where they gave points to every Muslim being shot, terribly gamifying this whole act. And by some of the sympathizers who then also posted yeah, videos and even posted comments like, is this a LARP? Is this a live action role play? Or comments like, get the high score. Yeah. So basically, people are being sucked into identifying with it. Exactly. This is obviously sounds a bit like anyone who's viewing that material and posting that kind of, of response is already entering into a, a dark territory in terms of what they're associating themselves with. But I think that perhaps the bigger argument is, how much does this matter outside damaged and damaging cliques in societies, the so-called Overton window of the range of ideas deemed acceptable by the main political movements in societies. It's, it's quite a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's very easy to say, well, this only goes to show this has led to or fed Donald Trump or it's fed populism in, in my country in, in Europe. But it's quite hard to figure out where this borderline lies and how porous it is. What do you think? Yeah, it's very hard to put numbers on the so-called mainstreaming of, of extremism. But we have definitely seen in the last few years that the language used by the extreme fringes has moved more into parliaments, into political debates on social media, where we see, for example, front runners of the European elections and also leading politicians Heads of state explicitly mention conspiracy theories like the Great Replacement Theory, the idea that white European populations are being wiped out gradually and replaced with, with migrant populations. And that's exactly the conspiracy theory that has been driving the last few far-right terrorist attacks. This is something where it is very concerning to see increasingly politicians using the same language, even sometimes referencing some of these subculture, extreme subculture elements, using memes from these online subcultures. Well, that, if I can put it this way, is a common wisdom that it's it's worrying. Everybody's, uh, liberals always worried. Like, what's a big word mm. next to liberal? That I'm so worried when they're not depressed. <laughs> but let me put a, a challenge to you about the broad sweep of European politics at, at the moment and, and rise of disruptive forces and populism there. You might actually be better off having those who have a tendency towards extremism absorbed into existing parties. And Austria, your home country, is a good example of that, the mass exodus of Freedom Party voters to the People's Party, which was a main conservative party in and out of coalitions over the years, very dominant in Austrian politics. So it may in fact be better, as a previous leader in Bavaria once said, you know, to the right of me, there is nothing or nothing respectable. Yeah. What do you make of that thesis that is sort of better inside the tent than out? I'll be very careful with that one because I know that there are some ongoing research projects to look into the correlation between having far-right populist parties and the amount of extremist violence and whether actually we see more hate crimes and terrorist attacks happening in countries that do or that don't have far-right populist parties, for example, in power. So I think we still need a lot more research into this to really see whether, it's, whether this thesis is true. Generally speaking, from my observations in online extremist groups, it seems like usually they would use sometimes uh, Trump's rhetoric or the rhetoric of leading far-right politicians to justify even their means of violence. But of course, also in some cases where you don't have a political alternative, people might um, even be more, more likely to then turn to violent means. Let me give you a concrete example of the last two weeks. What would you do about the situation where the AFD takes 
a lot of votes in Thuringia, also in, in Saxony, parts of the old East Germany. The establishment in the Christian Democrats says, oh, we've kind of lost control of the situation on the ground. But whatever you do, don't get into to bed with these people. And yet there's this big block of voters, not all of whom are extremists, many are just not happy with their lives and not happy with the direction of travel as they see it in the society and in the country. Would you rather leave that movement out there and watch it grow or would you rather absorb it or at least parts of it into the mainstream parties? For the FD, it's a very tricky question because, of course, they did get a lot of votes in the last few elections and they are gaining ground in Germany. Uh, but at the same time, Germany has such a difficult historic relationship and the AFD's um, more extreme wing is increasingly influential within the whole of the party. It's a bit of a fragmented party at the moment, but the very extreme voices have become more influential, which is a potential threat. And even the security and intelligence forces in Germany are taking the party very seriously now and considering to permanently monitor them. So I'd say that there is a strong argument against forming a coalition with a party that, that is spreading conspiracy theories and is potentially feeding into even violent movements. At the end of your book, you, you offer 10 predictions and 10 solutions. That's very neat for the next five years. What you're driving at there is that we've learned a lot, and yet there's still a very contentious argument. We've touched on it in terms of European politics of the right, but also on Islamist terror and what to do about it. Do we follow, as you've done, the cat and mouse trail? through the digital world, or like Ayan Hersai Ali, do you say, you know, this is not going to get anywhere unless you fundamentally take on, have a big argument about the roots of that ideology? What have you learned about the balance of those two arguments? So in my previous book, The Rage, I also examined the relationship between Islamist and Farid extremism. And I don't think we can tackle the problem of any form of extremism without looking at it holistically and looking at how different extremist movements also help one another in framing the enemy, simply driving chaos or provoking a higher degree of polarization in society. So I'd say we need a multi-layered approach. And it's also not enough to just have a political response to that or a security-led response. I do genuinely think that we also need a lot of civil society-driven action in order to especially tackle some of the gray zones where it's not possible and also not desirable to impose any freedom of speech infringements, for example, on all corners of, of social media or of the online spaces. But this idea that a technology-led intervention, and there are good examples of this all around the place, and you, your government, you can go and get your software off the, the shelf, which is supposed to basically help you track people through the systems. I think the fundamental philosophical argument is, does that ultimately take you to the right place? Or does it just mean that you understand more about the tech and less about the ideology? That's a good point. Interesting. I do agree that having a simply just an approach that's focused on, on tech only can also be deceptive because we're still talking about human human beings here. And I think any purely tech-led approach is looking away from the fact that we're dealing with the human psyche of things that have always been appealing to us as human beings, like, for example, violence and and even conspiracy theories are not something new. It's just the tech dimension that's added now as an accelerator of some of these dynamics of accelerating addictions, loneliness, and, and also radicalization patterns. That's also one of the key learnings from, from my undercover experiences with even the most extremes among the extremists. There is still a lot of human dimensions to them where we can start for any kind of intervention program and that we should use in order to counter the threat more generally. So um, I did wonder if you'd had any sympathy or empathy for the people that you'd got to know in your alternative uh, existence and in the darker reaches of the online forums? 
Yeah, in many of the cases, I could empathize with with their struggles, with their grievances and and fears. What led them into the extremist movements was sometimes very much understandable. Of course, that doesn't change that some of the ideologies and and conspiracy theories are are really vile, and I was disgusted by by the ideologies. But I. I'd say that it's important to still consider even members of, of extremist or terrorist organizations as human beings and to also treat them like this in any kind of responses. Where would that take you? What would it achieve? Well, we've already seen some pilot initiatives being launched, intervention programs that are happening online because we, we have a lot of offline intervention deradicalization programs, but we've not really seen many de-radicalization initiatives that really go into some of these fringe, very extreme messaging boards and chat rooms and try to bring people out with professionally trained psychologists, with maybe even former extremists and survivors of terrorist attacks. This is something at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue we've piloted some programs, but I do think that there is much more potential for that. So if you look back on your time going dark, as you put it, and then coming back into your day job when you're out and about as an analyst of journalist, a book writer. Do you feel that there's actually two sides of you, two souls in one breast? As Goethe puts it in Faust that you have to now deal with. A bit. Um, it Even whilst doing it, it felt a bit um, confusing sometimes to switch between all the different identities. But now coming back from that experience, I also hope to be able to inform some of the policies, some of the responses that are taken on the other side. And I, I do hope that the book is also doing that job of, of also helping everyone um, who maybe doesn't deal with the subject on a daily basis, but who encounters this on, on whenever um, you go on social media. I do think that the topic is omnipresent. And I my goal was also to help individuals to protect themselves from the manipulative tactics that I could spot within those movements. Julia Ebner, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And we'd like to know what you think, what drives people to ideological extremism, and how can that cycle be best disrupted? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. For more of our journalism, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.